0: Hey, what's up? It's Gustavo Ariano. And today we have a new podcast for you called Border City. Reporter Sandra Dibble spent more than 25 years covering the US-Mexico border for the San Diego Union Tribune. And what she found out after her first day on the job is that Tijuana's complicated. It's a city that's forever battled stereotypes of being dangerous and dirty. But those who live there or have been going to Tijuana their entire lives like my family, we see it as what a border town is supposed to be vibrant, future-thinking, incredible. Sandra herself says living in Tijuana and discovering its arts and culture scene was like, quote, being let in on a wonderful secret, one that defied all the stereotypes about the city that she now loves. Lots of TJ's best and worst qualities are because of the city's proximity to the U.S. border, the impact of being home to the Western Hemisphere's busiest border crossing, how the border has shaped Tijuana, all of that, it's a big part of what Sandra spent her career digging into. And she pulls all that work together in this new eight-part narrative podcast series. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to play some of those episodes because we got to boost our sister publication and all their great work, you know? So here's episode one of Border City. It's called Crime and Friendship. And here's Sandra. Enjoy.
1: Whenever I catch the news these days, I see stories about the U.S.-Mexico border. And so many times, I'm struck by one thought. They don't capture the heartbeat of the place where I've lived and worked for almost 28 years. New report
0: ranks Tijuana as the most violent city Good in the evening, world.
1: Borderfield State Park closes at
2: sundown, and just before it, some folks made a dash for the U.S. border from the other side. Oh, they crossed the wall! They crossed the border! They're not coming into this country. They might as well turn back. They're not
0: coming into this country.
1: It's not that the stories are wrong. It's just that in the rush of daily news and in the fury of talk show debates, so many voices are drowned out. I'm Sandra Dibble, and this is Border City, a new podcast from the San Diego Union-Tribune. It's about my time reporting in Tijuana, a city on the busiest stretch of the border, a city both cursed and enriched by its proximity to the U.S. It's about the people who live here and the people who pass through about the geography that shapes and sometimes breaks them. I was curious about a city that, just like me, seemed caught between worlds. It turned out that I had arrived at a critical year for Mexico, 1994. On January 1st, Indigenous Zapatista rebels in southern Mexico declared war on the Mexican government.
2: Hundreds of armed peasants have seized control of four towns in southern Mexico. They demanded rights and recognition for the country's indigenous people, and they called themselves the Zapatista Army of National Liberation.
1: The Zapatistas wanted to draw attention to the injustice and poverty that was sending so many people to the United States. On that same day, the North American Free Trade Agreement was launched. It created a giant trade zone made up of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico.
2: Today we have the chance to do what our parents did before us. We have the opportunity to remake the world.
1: But before the year was out, a major peso devaluation brought new challenges to Mexico. It was called the tequila crisis. Mexicans struggled with rising prices and spiking interest rates. Investors lost confidence and moved their money out of the country. In Tijuana, there was also a feeling of impending violence, like the first raindrops of a storm. The Arellano Felix drug cartel was defending its control of the smuggling route through Tijuana into the U.S. Rivals were murdered, cops and prosecutors were bribed and threatened or killed. The cartel was run by five brothers from the state of Sinaloa. They began as small time marijuana smugglers, then expanded to cocaine and heroin. They were growing rich and more powerful. Then, just a week before I started my job, an unthinkable crime drew the eyes of the world to Tijuana. Luis Donaldo Colosio was Mexico's leading presidential candidate. He was in his mid-40s, handsome, charismatic. He talked about social justice. The election was still five months away. But Colosio was sure to win. His party, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, hadn't lost a presidential election in 65 years.
2: Yo veo un con y con sed de
1: On March 23rd, Colosio was wrapping up a campaign stop in Tijuana. He was in the working-class neighborhood of Lomas Taurinas. A video from that day shows him trying to make his way through thousands of people. They had crowded into a vacant lot to see him. He could barely move. A lively cumbia played in the background. At the words, Oye, Jose. And with a pistol emerges from the crowd, just a few inches from Colosio. It fires, hitting him in the head. Then it fires again, hitting him in the stomach. The crowd is so large and the music so loud that at first most people don't realize Colosio had been shot. Then there's panic and the video blurs. Colosio is rushed to a hospital, but he doesn't survive.
0: More of Sandra's story after a quick break. And we're back with episode one of Border City. Here's Sandra Dibble again.
1: Other U.S. reporters who covered Tijuana lived in San Diego and commuted across the border. But I decided to live in Tijuana. I imagined slipping into a busy, bustling metropolis filled with people searching for a place and a purpose. So I left my job and my family and friends in Washington, D.C. and set out on an impulsive midlife adventure covering Tijuana for the San Diego Union-Tribune. To my friends, it seemed like a bold decision. But to tell you the truth, I was homesick and filled with self-doubt. I spoke Spanish and had studied and worked in other parts of Mexico, but I didn't know a single person in Tijuana. It felt overwhelming. I'm not prone to prayer, but this is what I wrote in my diary the day I accepted the job. I cannot bear to leave what I know for the unknown. Please God help me, give me strength and courage to start anew. I am not sure why I am doing this. Please, God, guide me through this." The mechanics of crossing into my new life were simple. From San Diego, I took Interstate 805 and drove south. As I got closer to the border, I could see Tijuana's hillsides packed with tiny houses. There wasn't much foliage. It looked so different from San Diego. I found a two-bedroom apartment in a neighborhood on a hillside near the city's golf course. The streets were so quiet that at sundown, I could hear flocks of birds chirping in trees. The houses were protected by barking dogs, and by tall walls splashed with red, pink, and purple bougainvillea. My first big news story landed on the night of April 28th. I was in my new apartment feeling stranded as I watched the sea of lights from my balcony window. And then my pager went off.
2: Investigators say police chief Federico Benitez and his bodyguard were ambushed late last night by two men armed with automatic assault weapons. Today, there are no suspects,
1: no motive. Tijuana police chief Federico Benitez and his bodyguard had been ambushed on a busy highway at about 9.30 p.m. One vehicle cut them off. Then a gunman in a Ford Bronco opened fire with an AK-47. Both men were dead. As I drove through the darkened streets to a news conference, Tijuana felt eerily still. The broad boulevards were almost empty. Only the wails of police sirens pierced the silence. It felt unreal, as though I was moving through a dream. I drove through a traffic circle and turned onto the bridge that crosses the Tijuana River Channel. I hung a left and pulled up at City Hall, a three-story box-like building that takes up most of a city block. Outside, a small crush of journalists surrounded the city spokesman. A reporter who looked to be in her 30s was calling out questions. When the spokesman fumbled for answers, the reporter didn't back down. I asked no questions, but that reporter noticed me, just as I noticed her. Her name was Elena Cortez. It was difficult not to notice that there was an American in Mexico in the middle of a small group of Tijuana
0: colleagues.
1: Over the years, Elena would become one of my most trusted friends. She'd been reporting in Tijuana since she was a teenager. She's seen the city persist through political transitions and economic crises. But crimes of this magnitude, the killings of a presidential candidate and a police chief, shocked even her. These were horrific and critical moments that Tijuana was going through. We had just gone through the assassination of Luis Donaldo Colosio, and we could not understand why we were going through this wave of violence. The chief was 42 years old, married, with three children. In his previous life, he'd been a lawyer and a factory administrator. His lack of police experience was a plus for Mayor Hector Osuna, who had appointed him to the job just 17 months earlier. Osuna wanted a chief who was an outsider, someone willing to weed out corruption and restructure the department, a reformist who shared Osuna's determination to create a city government that people could count on. Benitez had a reputation for honesty and hard work. He seemed like the perfect partner.
2: He wasn't like uh, he was obsessed with corruption or anti-corruption or fighting people. No, he was just obsessed, and, and I was with him obsessed, of having a, a working institution. Uh, we're not obsessed against what we go against, but we were obsessed with what we were building as an institution, a police institution that had the respect of the citizens and to do, to do the job the best they can do, and also protect our own police force.
1: Benitez had already fired several hundred police officers suspected of corruption. Those who remained were given better training, and higher pay. And the public was responding. Some people reached out to Benitez personally when they saw something suspicious in their neighborhood.
2: So they were telling us through the police force and telling us what's going on in every colonia of Tijuana. They would say, you oh, know, this is a pretty strange house, they come in and come out and stuff like that. So we started to notice that.
1: Benitez had been getting death threats. Osuna got them too. But they weren't all that worried. Osuna didn't even take bodyguards with him when he drove to work. So you weren't you weren't well, on threats, guard?
2: Thre- threats were all the time, was a very common thing, you know, over the radio, over things. But uh, it turned out that there were so many that you couldn't take him seriously.
1: A few days before Benitez was killed, he told the mayor about a meeting he had with a federal police commander, a young guy who'd just been assigned to Tijuana. The commander asked Benitez to stop interfering in drug-related activities. If he did, both of them would receive
2: a benefit. There'll, there'll be benefit for, for both of them. I don't know about figures. Or something, and I go like, he came right away to tell me, and I go like, well, don't worry about it. Just don't mess around with him. That's it. Was he frightened? No, I don't see. I, I don't think he was frightened. I think he was uh, surprised about the uh, boldness of the. Uh, of the first uh, encounter with him, and goes like, this is the way we want to run things here. He goes like, okay, I I tell him, don't worry about me, I'm just going to do my job, and that's it.
1: After Benitez was killed, Osuna started wearing a bulletproof vest, and he began traveling with bodyguards. Osuna also got some personal advice from the U.S. Consul General in Tijuana.
2: He was sort of asking me, are you worried? How do you feel? And I go, yeah, well, I'm worried. I, I, you know, I don't feel good. I, I don't feel safe. But I got to do what I got to do. So I got to keep working. A lot of people around me telling me that I got to be more careful in terms of oh, my safety. And I go, I, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to cope with this. And he goes, you know what? I'm, I come from Colombia. and he, he used to be in Colombia. And he says, uh, you, you'll get used to it. I mean, violent places. Then, And I, I was thinking at that time that it was very difficult to get used to that. He says, no, 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 don't worry about it. You'll get used to it. Just be careful about it. I mean take your precautions, but you'll get used to it.
1: Did
2: you,
3: know did you get used to it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Okay. Osuna said that after a couple of weeks, he stopped worrying so much. He still had a security detail, but it was smaller.
2: Then we just said, well, hey, forget about it. I mean, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen anyways.
1: A state prosecutor was assigned to investigate Benitez's murder. He was a young lawyer who had a reputation for taking on sensitive organized crime cases. He charged three people in the chief's death, including the commander who had tried to bribe Benitez. Three years after the chief was assassinated, gunmen shot that young prosecutor more than a hundred times. Then they drove back and forth over his body. It happened outside his home in Tijuana, in front of his wife and infant daughter. To outsiders, Tijuana is often defined by violent incidents, like the ones I'm telling you about. But I quickly learned that Tijuana is a city of many realities. Because I knew so few people when I arrived, I had a lot of free time to roam. I would drive east to the ragged neighborhoods on the city's outer edges— without paved roads or running water. I saw houses built from old garage doors that had been carried across the border from California. I dropped in at outdoor markets and watched families do their weekend shopping beneath brightly colored tarps. Other times, I headed for Avenida Revolucion, the busy tourist strip, and made friends with the merchants selling fine pottery and embroidered blouses. Señor Espinosa wore a beret and shared his wine and cheese as he told me about the people from Mexico's interior who made the crafts he displayed. One of my first friends was an Argentinian woman named Adelaida Lagares. I was covering an anti-violence protest in downtown Tijuana, and she was hard to miss. She was wearing a blazer with red and white stripes that looked like something she'd stolen from a barbershop quartet. She was in her early 60s. She had short white hair, big aqua eyes, and a laugh that made everything seem all right. Adelaida had raised six children. She had survived a military dictatorship, exile, two divorces. She was always ready for a political discussion with a cigarette and a coffee cup in hand. I became part of Adelaida's eclectic circle of friends and family, sociologists psychologists, a historian, a demographer—most of them transplants, like me. We gathered at her hillside apartment for potluck parties. We shared wine and talked for hours. I could tell Adelaida anything that was on my mind. I told her about my family, about growing up in different countries as a diplomat's daughter, about the Tijuana I was discovering day after day. Sometimes we'd walk to her window and just stand together, looking at the hillsides covered with lights. We talked about how the city was a crossroads, just like the cities of antiquity I'd studied in school— Carthage, Alexandria, Damascus, Constantinople— a vibrant city of trade and migration, of people like me and Adelaida. A place where paths converge, where lives play out, Sometimes in odd and unexpected ways. One night, high on a hillside, I went to hear a performance by Marco Antonio La Bastida. He sang romantic music by the late Maria Griver, a 20th century Mexican songwriter.. Marco Antonio graduated from the Oberlin College Conservatory in Ohio. His accompanist was Pavel Getman, who moved to Tijuana from the former Soviet Union. Tijuana's broad reach caught me by surprise. There I was, listening to a Tijuana-born, U.S.-trained tenor sing beloved Mexican songs with a Ukrainian-born pianist who now called Tijuana his home. It was as though I'd gotten in on a wonderful secret. One that defied all the stereotypes about the city I was already beginning to love.
0: Back to Tijuana after the break. And we're back with longtime border reporter, Sandra Dibble.
1: In my first weeks in Tijuana, I wrote about Chinese smugglers, a NAFTA milk dispute, and an endangered mouse whose existence threatened the construction of a sewage treatment plant. I shared an office with two Union Tribune colleagues, a photographer and another reporter who focused on crime and the Arellano drug cartel. We worked in one large room with frayed carpeting and piles of old newspapers gathering dust. It was in the upscale Rio zone, the city's financial center. Federal and state police offices were so close that I walked to them. For lunch, I strolled to a nearby taco stand or waited for a vendor to buzz from downstairs. He'd walk up with a plate of fruit sprinkled with chili, salt, and lime juice. My circle of friends slowly grew. I met Mexican colleagues for coffee. Sometimes I sat with Dorelena, my new journalist friend. It was, and still is, hard to get a word in edgewise at her table. She talks fast, and people are always stopping by to discuss the latest news. Dorelena invited me to family gatherings at her house. Everyone clamored for a chance to sing, and I was fascinated by their lack of inhibition. Dorilena's sister, Norma, would belt out boleros and ballads in this deep, soulful voice. Soon, Norma and I were friends too.
3: Si yo muero primero.
1: By the time I arrived in Tijuana, the leaders of the Arellano Cartel had gone underground, but they were a hovering presence here. Their names would come up whenever people were killed, arrested, or disappeared. The US
0: State Department is offering a $2 million reward for information leading to the capture and conviction of cartel leader and muscle man, Ramon Arellano Felix
1: the brothers had begun inserting themselves into Tijuana society in the early 80s. It was a smaller city then, not much more than a half million, but growing fast. Nobody was quite sure what to make of them with their brash manners and garish shirts. By the mid-1980s, they were spotted all over town. Benjamín Arellano led the organization. He married a local woman, and they had two children— He could be seen poring over ledgers at Sanborn's. It's a popular restaurant on Avenida Revolucion in the city's tourism district. Ramón Arellano was the cartel's temperamental enforcer. He sped around in a red Porsche and partied in the upscale Hipódromo neighborhood. Sometimes he flirted with girls outside an elite private school, Instituto México. Some of the students were mesmerized by his gaudy clothes and fancy car. The brothers and their entourage often showed up at a popular nightclub called La O. They dressed like cowboys and they partied in the VIP lounge. They were
2: too loud, too strong, and they they were impressive young people from
1: Sonora. That's Jose Galicot. He owned La O back then. Uh, Impressive because they were so smart, or impressive because they were so handsome, or why were they impressive? When you are a
2: young guy and you see people that have been successful, they have cars, they have money, they have girls, they have things. Those young people suddenly want to emulate
1: that. Calicot said the Tijuanaenses, that's what people here call themselves, had never seen anything like the Arellanos. Did they make you scared for your own children, like, don't go with those guys? Yes.
2: When they came here, it was a surprise. We, we, we didn't have this kind of people. So we were not ready to defend ourselves, our children. As soon as we saw what was happening, I I talked
1: to my children many times. Adriana Odoyan was one of the young people whose life would be turned upside down by the Arellanos. She had just turned 20 when she first saw Ramon Arellano. It was in 1987, during a party at a
3: neighbor's house. And I'm just hanging out, and then this guy, this clown, I would say, he had the hair like, like he was wearing a helmet out of hair. He was wearing <laughs> a mink, um, a mink vest, no shirt. He was wearing a super thick gold chain with a cross like this big, with emeralds. I don't know. This is what five seven inches, with an encrusted in emeralds, just huge emeralds. Wearing leather shorts, and cowboy boots. I mean, I just started laughing. I was like, who brought the clown? You know, and everybody's like, shut up, that's Ramon. I'm like, that is Ramon? Oh my goodness. So yeah, I didn't have a good start with him. I didn't, I didn't. That was my first impression.
1: Ramon sometimes swung by a meeting place for neighborhood teens, a tree simply known as El Arbol. It was just down the block from the large, comfortable house where Adriana grew up with her parents and three brothers. It was the kind of street where neighbors knew each other. Adriana's paternal grandfather was an immigrant to Tijuana. He settled there after fleeing the Armenian genocide of the early 20th century. Her father, Alejandro, was a respected civil engineer. Her mother, Cristina, spent time at the country club and volunteered at the Red Cross. Adriana and her brothers were born in U.S. hospitals, a common practice back then for Tijuana residents who could afford it. Like many people in Tijuana, they are dual U.S. and Mexican citizens. They attended prestigious Catholic schools on both sides of the border. Adriana still lives in the family home. She remembers a happy childhood where she and her brothers felt safe playing outside until sundown.
3: We were good kids. You know, we never did anything bad to people. We, we never, I mean, all of us, we were thick as thieves, like the four of us. It was the four of us against the world.
1: Her oldest brother, Alejandro, was called Alex. He played basketball, football and baseball, and was often the team captain. Alfredo was 10 years younger. He loved animals and was on the country club swim team. As Adriana and her brothers grew into adolescence and adulthood, they did what others in their circle of childhood friends were doing. They partied hard, and they didn't think too much about the consequences of their actions.
3: So we thought we could get away with everything. We could run a red light, and nothing would happen. If we'd get stopped by a police car, you know, we'd be like, I'm so-and-so, and they'd be like, okay, sorry, go ahead. Now we're the old families from Tijuana. okay, sorry, go ahead. Standing in a line to go into a bar or going to a disco was like, what? No. We were spoiled assholes is what we were. I mean, now looking back, we were just, um, excuse my language, but we were a bunch of pricks. <laughs> you know? Uh, we thought the world was ours. Our uh, parents had money. We, a job? What? No. You know, jobs weren't for us. It was like an epidemic. It was, I think that from maybe 25 kids, maybe five worked. You know, and it was really bad. It was just bad. Adriana isn't sure how it happened, but
1: Alex and Alfredo and a few other young men in their group gravitated to the Arianos. These privileged young men who joined the cartel became known as narco juniors. Before long, Alex and Alfredo were being watched by law enforcement agencies on both sides of the border. Adriana is 54 years old now the mother of two grown daughters. She talked to me in her kitchen while she fixed tacos made of hibiscus flowers. Her lively brown eyes filled with laughter and then tears as she spoke of her brothers.
3: I don't know what happened. We all hung out with the same people. Ram- Ramon Ariano started, like, infiltrating. The next thing I know is that all this is happening, and I told my brother, why don't you just take off, just go. And my youngest brother says, no, I can't, if, if I go, then things will happen to you guys. And that's when he realized that he was in in deep, you know, that it, 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 it kind of snuck up on us. By the time
1: Adriana and her parents understood how far Alex and Alfredo had drifted, it was too late. In episode two, the 1996 Republican Convention comes to San Diego, and Tijuana hopes to grab some of the international spotlight. But those plans are shattered when a Japanese businessman is kidnapped. Border City was reported, written, and created by me, Sandra Dibble. Susan White was my editor and co-creator. Our associate producers were Elise Anoush Manoukian and Hafsa Fathma. Kurt Conan and AMFM Music provided original music and sound design. Joanne Ferrian and Garage Media supplied production support. Our theme song, Guerra Mestiza, was composed by Gerardo Tamés and performed by Mexico City-based Los Folkloristas. Marco Antonio Labastida and Jorge Villalobos performed Júrame by María Grieber. And Miguel de Hoyos and Norma Cortés performed Nuestro Juramento by Julio Jaramillo. La Culebra by Banda Machos is a song that was playing when Colosio, the presidential candidate, was shot. Many thanks to Carmen Escobosa, who read the voice of Dora Elena.
0: Really great work, Sandra. Congrats on a great first episode of Border City and everyone else. Make sure you find and follow Border City on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any future episodes. And of course, we'll have a couple more episodes in the coming weeks here on The Times. And that's it for this episode of The Times. Daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow. One of my colleagues talks to us about losing her dad to COVID-19 and ties it to a bigger conversation about losing Black men in America and why no one should be okay with how things stand. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Ashley Brown, Angel Carreras, and David Toledo. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Morland. Our executive producers are Jasmine Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eben. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in Desmadre. Gracias.